Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. The Communist Party has always placed considerable emphasis on the importance of history, never more so than under its current leader, President Xi Jinping. The speech he gave in Hong Kong in July 2022 was full of references to events of the past, reflecting a particular interpretation with which many others disagree. For Mr Xi, the narrative follows China's steady progress towards prosperity following a century of humiliation which began with the Opium War in the 1840s. But some historians say that China misses the opportunity to learn valuable lessons and avoid future mistakes. Well, I'm very pleased to welcome back to the podcast today an expert on China's history, John Fitzgerald, Emeritus Professor at Swinburne University in Melbourne, Australia. He grapples with the concept of the century of humiliation and analyzes the increasingly patriotic mood in China in his recent book, Cadre Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party. John, thanks for joining us again on China in Context. Delighted to be back, Duncan. Let's start with Xi Jinping. He launched a campaign to encourage members of the Chinese Communist Party to spend time learning about the history of the party. What did he want them to learn? Basically, he wants to restore confidence in the party among party members and, and the cadres among them, to restore confidence in its historical right to rule, faith in its socialist path, belief in Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong, confidence in the vanguard system, the, the, the cadre system, which is in Leninist terms is a vanguard system. And this is all set out in his doctrine of the four self-confidences. We need to understand our party history if we want to be confident. And this goes to a, a question, I guess, why? My, my impression is that before he came to power, there is a crisis of confidence in the party, the sense in which the party had lost its way. And he's determined to, to show where that way lies. And basically it's going back, going back to the origins, to the original vision and the founding mission of the Communist Party. Xi Jinping went to Hong Kong in July 2022 to mark the 25th anniversary of the return of the city to Chinese rule, following its period as a British colony. What did you make of his comments on history during that trip? He touched quite a bit on history, on the past and Hong Kong and you know, British colonialism and the century of humiliation and the like but not quite as much as I expected, actually. If, um, if we think back to the 1990s, there was no mention of Hong Kong without going over history and, and you know, um, what Britain had done to China. Great, huge films were under production on the Opium Wars and so on. That's, that's not where he's at at the moment. It seems to me his focus now is on the here and, and the now, on the recent history, on questions like the security, stability, sovereignty, development, and so, so on of Hong Kong. And history, in a way, is, is shrinking. In, in that frame, much as he focuses on it, he's focusing even more on security and stability. And of course, this is because he's trying to hose down hostile local and foreign reactions to the national security law that was in, introduced in Hong Kong in 2020. That's the new history that's going to matter in Hong Kong. And I think he's, he's making history and, and telling it as he goes along. I gather that the phrase century of humiliation has been rather in and out of fashion since it was first coined following the Japanese invasion of Manchuria. We often hear it these days, and it was also used a lot in 1989. 
Why now? And what's the connection with 1989, please? Yes, so that precise term, century of humiliation, was not widely circulated in China in the 60s, 70s or 80s. It really came to circulation in the 1990s. And that was largely due to the party's renewed emphasis on patriotic education in, in schools and colleges after the democracy demonstrations of 1989. Uh, the party held that young people were being misled by you know, false promises of liberal democracy. They needed to understand China's century of humiliation to understand where they, the Communist Party, uh, were coming from. And so it's been a really important part of the school curriculum since well, right through the 1990s. As I mentioned a moment ago, it, it was often raised in relation to the reversion of Hong Kong, the return of Hong Kong in, in 1997. And over a period in the 90s, there were hundreds of articles really on the Centre of Humiliation in People's Daily and, and other newspapers specifically referring to the version of Hong Kong. But then it was thought it, was, it would all be over. But curiously, when, when Xi Jinping came in, he's, it, it's taken on a new life again. Little to do with Hong Kong, but now relating to, say, the Korean War or to Xi Jinping's China dream of national rejuvenation to overcome the, you know, the shame and humiliation of the century of humiliation and the like. So for the party, it seems this, this theme, century of humiliation, is just too good to let go. You know, it's revived in the 90s. It's all about Hong Kong. Then it's forgotten about for a bit. Oh, you know, it's back on the agenda again. Well, I don't let go of it either because I think there's a, a serious history to all this and there's a politics to it. Um, and uh, I dwell on that in the book and the, the history of that particular term and an alternative term, not century of humiliation, but national humiliation. And that was a term favoured by the nationalists, the KMT, and it targeted Japan, whereas the century of humiliation basically targeted Britain and, and the United, United States. So the communists uh, prefer the term century of humiliation, the nationalists, national humiliation. The communist one, actually, the century of humiliation was really, as far as I can tell, coined by the collaborationist army under Japanese occupation and only picked up by the communists afterwards. I don't think I'd have spotted that uh, subtle difference between the century of humiliation and national humiliation without your help, John. At one point in your book, you say that the party's history is family history. What led you to that conclusion? Well, that's actually a chapter title in the book. So it covers a lot, a lot of ground. It's not so much an argument as a way of bringing together a whole lot of themes around the way in which the ethic of the family and the structure of the party and the nature of the nation all being sort of yoked together at the moment under Xi Jinping. First off, China's national history, I argue, is, is being reduced to party history. That's the core thing. That's my core argument. But once you get to party history, you find Xi Jinping turning to family analogies to describe the party and the nation in his sort of avuncular style. So he says things like, all party history bears the surname party, Xingdang. This is applying a patriarchal family model really to party history. And his, his leadership team speaks of red genes being passed down to younger successes as if party history was a kind of political bloodline traced from one generation to the next. And it's using this term, Xing, surname, surname party, as if to say the party is this one big patriarchal lineage. There's a sense that this family ideology is being extended to the nation. And you, you find um, exhortations to the people of China to love their leader as they would their parents and so on. Uh, I find this the most disturbing aspect of it, because it has echoes 
of the militant family state ideology of Imperial Japan, known as the Katsuko Kokka ideology, in which the imperial state you know, generated support for its militarist ambitions on the understanding that people should die for their country as they would you know, sacrifice themselves for their parents. And, and then there's a literal aspect to all this as well. I mean, it's linked to bloodlines among actual revolutionary families tracing their right to rule. And Xi Jinping is, 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 sits right in, in, in one of those bloodlines. So I bring these various practices together, some metaphorical, some literal, some to do with the family, some to do with the party under the title. The party history is family history. It's very intriguing, actually. I have occasionally come across uh, left-wing people in this country, in the UK, who... They say, for example, my father was a, a, a trades union activist and my grandfather before that. Uh, it was my my heritage. They almost talk about it actually as being a bloodline. But that's quite unusual. Um, look, you're a historian. Do you think that the Chinese Communist Party abuses history or is that too strong a word? Oh, I think that's fair enough. Of course, all institutions everywhere like to cover over those more blemished moments in their past and tell their stories through trusted voices, picking only the best photographs, crossing some people out. Listen, the Communist Party is not alone in that. What, what's different is that it insists that it is the only historical voice. It enforces its historical distortions through the instruments of a dictatorial state. For example, through the education system, through museums, through popular cultures, through films, through, through everyday life. And the effect of these distortions can be not just stifling, but chilling, particularly when there's an anti-foreign, anti-Western, anti-Japanese element. You've been studying China for decades. What have you noticed about the level of patriotism now compared to previous eras? So patriotism and nationalism are obviously confusing terms. I spent some time trying to sort them out in the book. This is not the place to do that. But I think what you're asking is, what's the place of anti-foreign sentiment in China today, particularly anti-Western or anti-Japanese sentiment? In, and and what's, what does it mean for the rest of the world? It's pretty intense at the present time, I'd have to say, that it, it comes and goes in China and it varies across age groups and with gender. Um, I can remember when I first studied in China in the 1970s, little kids, little boys would hide behind trees and poke their heads out and shoot us as we passed, shouting, death to American imperialists. We were all Americans then, by the way, uh, anyone who wasn't Chinese. But, but as people got better acquainted with the world outside in the 80s and 90s, attitudes changed and became far more permissive or liberal in relation to foreign countries. The Japanese um, came in for a difficult time. My fellow students from Japan sometimes found their position very embarrassing. Um, but for others, it improved. The, the worrying thing today, I suppose, is that both anti-Western and anti-Japanese sentiment are sort of hardwired into this universal patriotic education initiative that all students undergo. And my impression is that it's, it's very effective, particularly among young people. Now it's true when they hit their mid twenties or make their way out into the world, they find that <laughs> things are a bit more complicated, that nothing and no one is perfect, certainly not in China, and they modify their views. But until then, you know, it's pretty effective. And you meet young students coming out of China now have been through these campaigns and their ideas are pretty fixed. Let me give you another quote relating to history. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, China's been careful not to criticise Russia, hasn't it? Um, and indeed, Mr Putin took part in a conference at which Mr. Mr Xi also spoke in July 2022. And after that event, a spokesman for the State Department in Washington said something about history and China. He said that Xi Jinping risked ending up on the wrong side of history. 
What did you make of that remark from the Americans? Well, it's not the first time we've heard that from the State Department. I think it's pretty unfortunate myself. I sometimes wish they'd parked that phrase. And I'll explain why. It's unfortunate because it plays into the party's own way of thinking. That is, that history is a player in itself. It's not people that make history. It's history that makes people. And that the historical victor, whoever it might be, is right simply because they won. They're on the right side of history, whatever they did to get there. That's actually the principle underlying the party's claim to rule China with this iron fist, that it rules in effect by right of conquest because history crowned it victor in the civil war of the 1940s. So it sort of reifies history. It makes history a player in all this, when actually it's people who make history, not history that tells us who should rule who. So in terms of US-China relations, it seems that the way people interpret history really does matter. Maybe they should invite historians like you to sit down when the presidents meet at the next big summit, because it seems as though you could be really useful in explaining what the leaders really mean when they use some of this perplexing historical rhetoric. Thank you, Duncan. I might get you to write a letter, a reference to my dean. <clears throat> I doubt very much that I'll ever be invited at the high table with presidents and princes. Nevertheless, I think we need to bear in mind that China does think, that the Chinese Communist Party thinks historically. Well, thank you for helping us to think historically as well, John. That was Professor John Fitzgerald uh, from Swinbourne University on the line from Melbourne. We were discussing his book, Carter Country, How China Became the Chinese Communist Party. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute and you can find out more about our activities, including courses and research on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.